Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. All right, we're back. Back in action, man. How's it feel? Honestly, after this one, I, I wouldn't say we were in action. I think we were in awe. Yeah, I. You don't. You're not going to hear very much of us once this thing gets underway. Oh, this was definitely a, a kick back and relax and enjoy the ride. Uh, bring a pen and paper and whatever else you have necessary to write on because, dude, the knowledge stacked. I uh, think, I think you need a whole entire notebook. Oh yeah. Well, it's just like I told him after the show. I've been studying some of this stuff on the the builder side, getting into it for two years now. And listening to him, I was sucked in like a kid who had just cracked the book. I mean, I feel like I don't know anything. I had to pick my job every time I wanted to talk, just so I would put it back into proper location to talk. I know, I'm I'm just a, a big fan of learn something new every day. Well, this you could actually sit and study for years and never get on that level. It was nuts. For you guys that don't know already or haven't figured it out by the title or the picture or just, you know, click on our podcast because that's what you do. We have Dr. Ashby on this week. Um, something that I've looked forward to and I know Steven's looked forward to having him on and chit-chatting with him about the Ashby Law, because it's no longer the Ashby Theory, as we were talking about. Yeah. It is the Ashby Law, because it is proven now that with the 12 foundation... What is the 12? 12 foundation steps. Okay, foundation steps. We'll go with. Okay, that's what I thought. That's what I was the, going the 12 <laughs> principles. Principles. We'll say the 12 principles. In the foundation. Pen- <laughs> if, if you want to sound Ron Jeremy, it's the 12 principles of penetration. Okay, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, it's 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 freaking cool, man. Like I, I'm I'm still like kind of lost for words in the simple fact of like what he's built in his entire life. Like just an incredible person that has just been through it all and is still going and has not stopped. And just yeah. I mean, talk about inspiration. I mean this this guy has killed hundreds and thousands of animals with this a bow and arrow. He's killed more stuff in more freaking countries than I have, and that's saying a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Truth to that. Truth to that. Man, I'm I'm still just blown away. I just can't believe it. I mean, in all pretty much with a recurve, a compound, you name it, he's killed it. Um I mean he's been kicked out of Africa. I don't know of many people that have been kicked out of Africa. <laughs> During that time frame, I think there were quite a few. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. It, it was not a pretty time in history, but That's true. That's a whole new conversation. Yeah. Well, <sighs> what do you think? You want to yeah, kick back a little bit, do a little catch up before we dive everybody into the uh scientific world of mass penetration i almost really don't even want to bother him with that <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know we we kind of have to we got to touch base on I a know. couple of things like that freaking 
piece of bone you found yesterday that looked like it had five turkey feet sticking out of it. So that's not even, I didn't even find that yesterday. No shit. That's an old shed, dude. Did you not see that I was like 300 pounds heavier? I, I was looking at the horn, dude. I'm not even lying. Uh, so that, like, that is the coolest looking freaking weird horn I've seen in a long time. So that, I was just digging through the archives of pictures. Gotcha. And uh, for you guys that don't know, on our Instagram page, I posted up a picture. And um, yeah, that I found that in 2008, 2009 maybe. So long story short, uh, a friend of ours um, shot that deer and couldn't find it. I went in there and tracked it with my dog. Still couldn't find it. I happened to be up in that area. I was waiting for a meeting or something. And I said, you know what? I'm going to buzz through the woods up here and see if I can't find a shed. Well, I found that shed, but it was from the year prior. And that deer was probably six years old, seven years old when I found that shed. And obviously, you know, the next year he probably wasn't. Never, We never saw him on camera after that. But, um, well, I mean, after he had been shot, we saw him the next year. Um, gotcha. but then we had never seen him again, but yeah, no, that's an old one out of the archives. All right. Well, there's clarifying. See your reason to catch up. Yep. Um, other than that, I mean, everything's kind of been a little slow as far as shed hunting's going. A lot of, a lot of deer still holding. Um, oh, yeah. we it's got, still early, man. Mm, it's stupid. Kind of funny is, um, actually, so I recently had, uh, as you, a lot of you guys know, uh, Devin and Ivy came up from North Dakota to visit me, and they had dropped off a couple of dogs. Those dogs are eight or nine weeks old. By t- no, they had to been lower than that. It's got to be twelve weeks, probably twelve weeks old. Anyways, so Steve Mardik had gotten one. Uh, Ghost Hunter had gotten one. A buddy of ours, Bob Koval, here from town, big time hunter, killer. And uh, I got a text message from him. His twelve or thirteen week old puppy found a fresh shed today. No shit. Which is really cool. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I've been oh, out there yeah. grinding trying to find one with Ruby and haven't. We found, uh, we haven't found no bones yet, but we found every other bone to every other thing. We found pig skulls and deer skulls and everything else, um, but no fresh bones. This well, little... that's the thing is you can search and search and search. If there aren't horns right where you're searching, no. you're not going to find any. No, exactly. But I just thought it was but cool that she's 13... finding bone, which she's doing hey, her dude. job. Yeah. I'm cool with it. I think tomorrow's the day. We're going to spend all day. We haven't gone all that hard. We've done a couple hours here, a couple hours there. Um, so we've been putting our time in. I've been goose hunting a lot. So we goose hunt in the morning and then I'll go out and try and find bones in the afternoon. So, And every spot nice. I keep going to, all these big bucks still holding horns. Oh, yeah. No, I'm I'm stoked. Actually caught up with a buddy night before last and we were talking and, and we found a, a new spot out here in town on the other side of the mountain that uh guy's got a big pond that it's his baby and he's all for letting people come in and try to whack as many geese as he can and we're coming into the late season where we're getting back into the uh the resident geese so we go up to five a day so i think we may go lay out there at his pond and finally get to lay some haymakers that's awesome, dude. That's fucking yeah, I, cool. Can't wait to see pictures of that. I was jacked. I was like, dude, I didn't think I was going to pop a goose with Maryland going down to one bird limits and shit like that. Because that's usually where I hunt up in the flyway. But this popped up and I was like, 
well, shit, there we go. Man, that sounds like a good time, bro. Between that and pulled into the driveway afterwards, and we had three massive possums running around the yard. And after last week's episode, I think I'm going to go get some foot traps and start running a miniature trap line around the farm. Perfect. <laughs> that, that sounds like it. You know, that's the nice thing about having Rule King so close to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's right down the road, and I got a lot of chicken killers that need caught. Perfect. I mean, you know, the thing with the possums are really good. A lot of people don't know, but they're actually, uh, I think I might have had stated this on that podcast, but they're one of the only mammals that are... Um, they, I don't know what the word is. Fuck. Um, they, they, they don't get the um, Lyme disease. Right. Which yeah, they're is, resistant. Yeah, resistant to fucking Lyme disease. So they eat the ticks and stuff, which is pretty cool. So they're kind of good to have around, but they eat the chicken eggs. Yep. Well, eat the chickens and they'll, Ooh. or they'll eat the chicken eggs, but they'll kill the chickens Just and not them. eat them. Yeah. Just like, like a raccoon. They'll right. kill them, play with them, and then leave them. So that's nuts. I think it's going to be a uh, a mass clearance for the year. I think I'd rather deal with picking off ticks and possible medications than losing 15 chickens a year. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, let them have it. So, yeah. That's all the hopes because, frankly, I haven't been out in the woods hardly at all in the last, I'm going to say, since Christmas, since we went to Arizona. And it's starting to drive me up the wall. Well, you've gotten a lot of things going on, man. Things have been kind of crazy, and you haven't had the time, and it happens. Dude. Yeah, we'll we'll leave it at that. I won't go into details, but I can't wait till this damn inauguration's over. That's the truth, huh? Which, it, at this point, the inauguration is over in podcast land, but uh, we're a couple days ahead. And whatever happens after this podcast... You can't say we had anything to do with. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> We're going to sit back and watch whatever happens, happens, and carry on with whatever the hell we do. I'm over it. Just let the guy be a president, and let's go back to haunting season. Exactly. I'm over it. I don't care anymore. So, so. it is what it is. Indeed. But, uh, is anything else new with you? Nah, man, just kind of, you know, goose hunting a little bit, finishing up uh, sea duck season. I got out the other day. We did really well. Um, other than that, I mean, just kind of chilling, getting ready for shed season, doing a lot of scouting. Um, hopefully everything kind of drops their horns soon, but other than that, I wanna, I did go over to Wild Edge today. I met Steve Marduk over there. He got his new berserker. Um, I may or may not have picked up mine. Nice. Maybe... Maybe waiting for you to get yours soon. I think we're going to put together a whole entire thing. We're going to ship it off to you. So nice. I was kind of crunched for time. It was kind of a last minute thing. <laughs> I, true ca- story. I called Steve and I was like, hey, dude, we're going to have to push it off for like an hour. I got to get over to Wild Edge. So I kind of held off all that stuff. But we'll see what happens. And then we do... We will have Wild Edge on the podcast on February 4th, Tuesday. I don't somewhere know. in there. Somewhere in there. That week, maybe that one or the one after. So We'll have some good stuff. They got the new new platform coming out. You know what? Let's just snap right into that. Why don't we just thank yeah. those who uh, to help us out. So we'll start off, obviously, Wild Edge Inc., wildedgeinc.com, the leader in mobile hunting. Uh, go and check them out. They do have the new Berserker out and the new Battlement. If you guys haven't seen them, check them out on YouTube or check them out at WildEdgeInc.com. 
Broadside Camo, broadsidecamo.com. They are the photorealism camo for your aerial hunter. Uh, check them out. Use p- promo code Outdoor Drive on that one. Also, Wicked Twisted Bowstrings, wickedtwistedbowstrings.com. Get jillified custom bowstrings, the BCY or the um, Bloodline series. You can design all of your strings over there at wickedtwistedbowstrings.com. Out on the limb, out on the limb manufacturing. They are the custom aerial hunter needs. I got to come up with like little slogans for these things. So if you guys got any, send them over to me because I definitely need something cool to be saying because I <laughs> always get tongue twisted trying to figure this out. Um, out on the limb manufacturing. They actually just came out. If you guys haven't checked it out, um, the one stick climb method. Um, they just came out with the Shakar with a scout on the top. And they also have quick release clips on them. Some really cool shit. Uh, go and check those out at outonthelimbmanufacturing.com or on YouTube also. Uh, timber tumblers for all of your custom tumbler needs. Um, check them out, timbertumblers.com. They're over on Yetzi. You can get yourself a custom tumbler and um, all that good stuff over there. Stickers and he does all kinds of crazy things. Um, Nor'easter Game Calls, nor'eastergamecalls.com. They are your custom one-stop shop game call website. And they make custom knives at mabcustomknives.com. Mock is the freaking man. So go and check them out over there. Help out those who help us. And, uh, yeah, fucking pretty cool. We're still here. Yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you guys haven't realized that you can't see our faces on this one, we are actually going to go all audio. Um, Dr. Ashby, obviously, um, is not as tech savvy as all of us, so we couldn't do a Zoom one I, on I, this one. In Dr. Ashby's defense, I am not going to say he's not as tech savvy, just strictly based on when true. you get done with this, you're going to be like, oh, he's doing more scientific craft than I can do with. Mm. He's just simple in the terms that he doesn't want to deal with all of the modern amenities. He just makes shit happen. So that's right. We're we're working on a phone line with this podcast, so it it's all audio. It's probably better for everybody that there is no video on this one. You would be oh yeah. You'd be a mess. <laughs> that's the you'd truth. You see man. us drooling for about an hour and twenty minutes. So if Y'all want to do us a huge favor also, go on to our YouTube page, subscribe, hit the notification button so you don't miss out on anything. Um, You can still watch this on YouTube, but it's audio only. Um, And if you guys are on our podcast app, make sure to just give us a five-star review if you're on the Apple side. Uh, Spotify, why don't you share it up, show some friends, show us some loves. And uh, yeah, man. Uh, Am I forgetting something? Other than common sense, I think you're pretty well covered. Are you sure? No. Do I never am. <laughs> okay, that's good. Um, is that Mike? Is he chiming in? Hey everyone, Mike here with some news for your crews. Uh, again, I usually try to stick to positive news, but a couple more... Uh, Major poaching cases have come to light recently. 
the first one being in Pennsylvania, where five teens face 143 charges and close to $100,000 in fines for what is being considered thrill killing. Uh, there were 11 full or partial deer carcasses identified in the shooting spree, and the teens have been charged with killing or attempted killing of 14 deer. The teens left the meat to rot for on all the carcasses, and only a few times did the teens even take the deer's antlers. Um, we'll have to wait to see what the final um, penalties are after the case moves forward um, here in Pennsylvania. So the second case comes from Kansas, where a hunter was found guilty of illegally hunting and poaching 60 whitetail and mule deer uh, and being a felon in possession of a firearm in the commission of those crimes. The hunter has been sentenced to 14 months in prison with post-release supervision of at least 12 months. And the hunter was also assessed $314,234.68 in restitution owed to the Kansas Department of Wildlife, Parks, and Tourism for the value of the deer killed. Additionally, uh, the hunter was charged with uh, and pled guilty to 33 misdemeanors in Harper County uh, and was fined $15,000 and ordered to pay restitution of over $17,000 for the three trophy deer that were killed in that county and also forfeiture of his hunting privileges for five years from the date of his conviction. So some really egregious crimes uh, in these two states. And I, I wish that the penalties for forfeiture of hunting privileges could be a little bit longer, but I'm really glad to see um, some heavy fines and restitution uh, coming out of these cases. It's nice to see those really getting bumped up um, and hopefully it'll be a deterrent in the future. So now back to some good news. Um, this is actually a follow-up from a segment I did uh, on episode 46 about bighorn sheep in Montana being relocated to the Little Belt Mountains. Uh, well, on December 17th, five young rams and 45 ewes were relocated from the Missouri River breaks uh, to the mountains. Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks will monitor each animal's movement, habitat use, and survival over the next five years using GPS collars. Uh, and Fish, Wildlife, and Parks anticipates more bighorn sheep, uh, moving more bighorn sheep to the areas within the little belts. Uh, in hopes that the herds will eventually connect with existing herds outside the Little Belts. Um, if you're interested, uh, the Montana um, Fish, Wildlife, and Parks YouTube page, it's Montana FWP, uh, does have a short video about the translocation of the Little Belt Sheep. Uh, it's actually called Little Belt Sheep, uh, so check that out if you have a couple minutes. So now let's circle back to Pennsylvania for some good news there. Uh, this past year, hunters were finally able to hunt on three Sundays throughout the season. And now additional Sunday hunting opportunities will be considered by the Pennsylvania Board of Game Commissioners at their January 23rd meeting. The commission has proposed expanding the species that may be hunted on two of the three Sundays. So in addition to archery hunting for deer on November 14th, uh, the proposal would uh, permit 
hunters to pursue squirrel, grouse, rabbit, pheasant, woodchuck, possum, skunk, weasel, raccoon, and porcupine. Uh, and these same species would species would also be added to the November 21st Sunday, uh, which is currently going to be open for bear. Uh, the commissioners will also consider allowing hunters and fur takers to carry digital hunting licenses and also to allow hunters to purchase a fourth antlerless deer license over the counter on the second Monday in September. So anyone wanting to submit comments on the proposals, you have a couple days, uh, and you may do so by emailing pgccomments at pa.gov. And lastly, another record falls, uh, this time in West Virginia, where on January 13th, uh, there um, were DNR, three DNR biologists uh, who are scorers for the Pope and Young performed a panel score on a buck killed in early November by Jody Dalton. Uh, the buck gross scored 195 and 0 eighths with 3 and 6 eighths uh, in deductions for a final net score of 191 and 2 eighths, making the buck the largest typical whitetail ever killed in West Virginia, besting Todd Cipher's 2014 buck of 188 and 7 eighths. Uh, all three members of the panel also aged the buck at three and a half to four and a half years old, um, which was kind of surprising because the majority of the larger bucks that had been scored uh, were older than this one. But congratulations to Jody on an amazing buck. And with that, uh, if you have any news, please send it along. Haven't seen anything coming in lately, but I know a lot of stuff's gearing up in the legislatures across the country. Um, a lot of change going on. Hopefully a lot of good stuff. Uh, you reach out to me at Mike Salter on Facebook or bearded underscore bowhunter21 on Instagram. Uh, and with that, enjoy the rest of your ride. So, thank you, Mike Salter. Appreciate it, buddy. You're the fucking man. And I got a present for you. Do I have a present for you, my friend? Well, when you do hear this podcast, Mike, just know that I have a present for you. You can call me and you can come pick it up. <laughs> we'll just leave that right there. I like it. Leave it that way. So why don't, without further ado, why don't we get the man, the myth, the legend, the Ashby on the line? Sounds like a plan, brother. All right, full set. Let's do it. Nice shot. Here comes a shooter. Shooter, big buck. Stack, stack, stack. We're back on the phone with Dr. Ashby. How are you, Dr. Ashby? Doing real well. How you doing? Oh, we're doing good. Where are you calling in from? Huh? Where are you calling in from? I'm down in South Texas. <laughs> what? Got that warm weather. Oh, yeah. It, well, it was kind of cold today. It didn't even make 70. <laughs> That's rough. <laughs> what a break. What a break. <laughs> 
So why don't you introduce yourself to everybody? Tell everybody who you are, where you're from, and uh, and what you do. Well, uh, <laughs> I'm Ed Ashby. I, I'm one of the co-founders of the uh, Ashby Bow Hunting Foundation. I've uh, been bow hunting. Oh, I guess I got in well over 50 years worth of bow hunting before. I had to knock it off after I hurt my back, broke my back. But uh, I'm down here in, in South Texas in pretty good country with lots of animals running around. And it's pretty nice. <laughs> wow. How did you break your back? Oh, I had a fall down in New Zealand. That was 2008. That in my gallivanting all over the world doing stuff. <laughs> wow. Were, were you out on a hunt when, when this happened? No, no, nothing as romantic as that. <laughs> you know, with all the crazy things I've done in my life, I, you know, it, it rains a lot down there in the South Island, and uh, I was visiting some friends there, and as you enter the house, there's, they always have these mud rooms. Between the mud room and, and the rest of the house, they have a little concrete barrier three or four inches tall. Well, I came in through the mud room there and stepped into the kitchen and on the linoleum, and my feet just went out from under me. Wow. So just that quick, I came down right across that concrete barrier, right across my back. Oof. And that ended it for you, huh? Oh, yes. <laughs> wow. Well, at least at least you've uh, you've led a very crazy journey up until that point. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's all been worth it. <laughs> wow. Had a great time. So where did it all start for you? Let's let's bring everybody back. Well, let's get everyone up to speed. Uh, well, I guess I got uh, interested in in archery, bow hunting, and stuff when I was in the third. I think it was third grade when uh, Howard Hill came to our school, put on a little even uh, his, his uh, movie Timba was out in theaters, and he was touring around the country and. Uh, you know, the movie was going to show there, and he came down and put on a, you know, an exhibition in our in our auditorium, and that that did it. I already loved to hunt before that, and I just okay, that's it. I was over the top. <laughs> Went home that day, made a bow out of a willow limb, and and made some arrows up and put cut out tin can points on them, and <laughs> bow lasted about ten shots and broke. <laughs> but I was hooked. That's good enough. <laughs> That's a good childhood right there. <laughs> oh, it's fun. Yeah, we grew up like little wild Indians just out in the sticks. And we'd go out the back door and start to hunt and fish. <laughs> Where did you grow up? East Texas. Oh, okay. So you've been in Texas your whole entire life. Well, no. I've When, when I uh, left uh, going off to college, I... That was it, man. I went and all over the world wow. and uh, hadn't really got back to that part of Texas. Uh, and, and But I always knew that if, uh, you know, if push come to shove and I couldn't gallivant around the world and do stuff, you know, I'd probably end up back in Texas. Wow. And and, and what did you do in college? What did you study? Uh, well, I went to school. What <laughs> most people do in college. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're trapped. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but like what what was your major? What did you what were you studying? Oh well I, I did pre med. Okay. And uh then you know, went on to uh to optometry school up in Tennessee, so I was up there for a while. 
And uh, after graduating, stayed on the staff there for a while. And then got drafted in the very last draft we ever had. That's how my luck usually goes. <laughs> and uh, then I went off, and I was up in Kansas, uh, stationed originally in Kansas. And then I went up and was stationed in Alaska, and then down to Arizona, and then back up to Alaska. And then when they wouldn't leave me in Alaska, I got out of the Air Force, changed over to public health service, uh, worked out on the Indian reservations for a number of years, and then uh, went down and ran the uh, area eye care program there, covers seven states. And from there, I went on to be chief of eye care for the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And uh, then I retired. Wow. Picked up, well, so got rid of everything I had and moved to Africa. Lived <laughs> over there till everything collapsed and I got thrown out. <laughs> and, wow. Then I came back and regrouped and went down and and uh, spent seven years in Australia, New Zealand, New Guinea, all that part of the world. So it was pretty good. So, so did you do what? What? What made you go to Africa? Let's take this thing back. Like you oh, just well, you just well, up and left and just decided you're going to go live in Africa. Oh well, yeah, I had been to. I, I went to Africa the first time in 1975. And had been back and forth to Africa several times. And, oh, I, yeah, it didn't take me a long time after that first trip to Africa to figure out as soon as I can retire, I'm going to just, I'm going to come over here and live and do this stuff. Wow. <laughs> so that's what I did. And I went over there. While I was there, I, uh, you know, I, I did all my, my own hunting and then, uh, uh, did my studies and stuff, but also worked as, uh, as a professional hunter part of the time, too. And, uh, you know, guiding people, particularly if we had bow hunters coming in, and uh, that, that was fun. It was it was good. Wow, had a great time. That was, uh, you know, if things hadn't fallen apart, I'd still be in Africa. I'm sure. <laughs> so, so is this where like the whole Ashby theory started? Was in Africa, or did you have this before you had gone there? Or but, uh, no, I I'd hunted Africa before that, but. Uh, in, I guess it was 1982, uh, I had tried b- b- earlier to uh, see if I could go over and hunt a rhinoceros and uh, get contacted people over there. And no, bow hunting wasn't legal for them. But uh, they started in about 82 with a project. They wanted to investigate in, in uh, South Africa, in the tall province. South Africa to uh, see about uh, how effective bow hunting was to see about legalizing bow hunting. And uh, somebody there at the meeting remembered that somebody had written him years, four or five years before that, asking about hunting a rhino. Because one of the things they wanted to look at was how big an animal can you hunt. And uh, so they went back and dug through their files, found my letter and tracked me down said you don't want to come over and do that well <laughs> yeah <laughs> i didn't have to think about that much and so i went over in uh 84 and uh we shot a rhino a white rhino and uh while i was over there i was talking to them about their you know their project what they were trying to do and they said well you want to come back next year and uh 
bring a lot of uh, bring as many different kinds of broadheads and things as you can. So that's one of the things we want to look at is, is equipment. And uh, said, okay, yeah, I'll do that. He said, well, we'll do another rhino. So okay, we came back and I shot another rhino, and uh, then we went down to Macuzzi Park. And this was, but they have to cull animals out of the park every year. And this was before they do their their rifle cull. And uh, said, well, what we want to do is we want to shoot as many animals as we can, and we want to shoot them as the present, you know, whatever shot angle he presents with. Because people are going to hit them in the wrong place, but we want to see what happens when we hit them. Because we were backed up with a rifle. So that if, uh, obviously was not going to be a, a lethal hit or something like that to put them down with a rifle. And uh, so we started doing that, shooting the animals, uh, and and uh, then doing field autopsies on them. And if we couldn't do field autopsies, they had a, a complete butcher set up big enough to handle elephants, literally. And uh, a couple of veterinarians that could, could look at the work, you know, could do the dissection. If we couldn't determine the field, then they would determine, you know, what was it, what happened, all about it. And uh, compiled all that information, and I put it all together in, in a report on the effectiveness of the equipment, which is the part I was doing. And uh, sent that back over to them after after we finished the hunt and all, and uh, they put that in with all their other information they collect on, you know, stress on the animals, times to collapse, uh, uh, how how much stress and reaction there was from other animals accompanying the animal shot, all sorts of things like that. And uh, once we got all the stuff together, they presented it to the Tall Parks Board. And the Parks Board uh, decided to legalize bow hunting. And uh, uh, that was the first uh, affirmative bow hunting law anywhere in Africa. Before that, the only places that bow hunting was mentioned was to outlaw it in, in every country. Uh, there were a few places you could bow hunt, but they were laws that were silent. They just didn't mention bow hunting at all. But uh, in no place up until then was there anything that said you could actually legally bow hunt. And from there, as soon as, as soon as they did it, it spread right through all of South Africa and then over to uh, Namibia and up to Zimbabwe and, and Botswana and Zambia and Malawi and Mozambique. It just went everywhere. And uh, now it's spread over most of Africa as uh, you know, some kind of affirmative bow hunting laws. And with those laws, like, do they have, like, certain weights that you're supposed to be using, or? It varies by country. Some some do, some don't. Okay. Uh, the equipment laws need to be a lot tighter than they are, and, and we're working on that. <laughs> <laughs> Gradually getting things changed into, uh, you know, where there will be some restrictions on the type of equipment. So how many animals did you have to take to get to that point? Uh, well, in that original uh, uh, at Bacuzzi, I shot uh, 154 animals. Wow! In 30 days. That's incredible, and that's and that's all shapes and sizes. Yeah, yeah, that was every well. That was we started out with, uh, you know, warthogs, impalas, ingalas, zebra, kudu, uh, that size animal. Okay. And uh, and of course, once that well, I was through with. But a tall study, every you know, every time I did anything in the study, every time I would do one series, I'd end up with new questions. Well, at the end of that, I had lots of questions, 
So I just kept on going and just kept collecting data. Wow. And I, I don't know the total now. It's probably, we probably got shots from over 5,000 animals, I would suspect, total. And uh, uh, so we collected a tremendous amount of data. Wow. And, of course, we're starting in the foundations, hopefully start up this year with a new round of, uh, of testing. And we'll start like we did with the Natal study. It's uh, We're not going to carry the other data over. We're going to start with, with fresh data. We've got the other we can compare back to. But uh, uh, we're going to start out with uh, just feral hogs, which is a fine light game animal for uh, for testing. And from there, we, we hope to expand it, going back to uh, Australia doing the Asian buffalo again. And from there, we'll... We may work in some of the African animals again too. So, so, so uh, everything depends on what happens in the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Especially with traveling and everything. Yep. So, what exactly is the Ashby theory? Like everyone talks about it, but n- what exactly well, is it? It's not a theory. Okay. We 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 have, you know, the only data that exists on terminal performance uh, of arrows anywhere in the world. And I was collecting at that point about uh, 119 factors off of every shot that we were tracking. Now, our new database is going to be considerable bigger because there's a lot of new things that didn't exist even when I was testing. And uh, I just finished work on the database, and we've got about 160 factors that will be tracked off of every single shot. And... uh, but this time we'll have not just me out there doing, we'll have a team of people. Mm-hmm. And that will help a lot. That, that'll take a lot of the burden off of doing it. Uh, it. It's a massive job to collect all this information. Uh, and so we hope to do a little trial run here sometime in the next couple of months. And if that goes good, we'll see what we need to do. First thing we've got to do is i got to break these new people in to what's got to be done out there in the field. Once you've done it a few times, you can get into it. It becomes a routine. But but you only have a very short, limited amount of time. Within 30 minutes of the animal expiring, you need to take all of your test shots. So you've got to work very, very quickly. So everybody's got to know exactly what they've got to do in order to be able to collect this data. And uh, so there, there'll be a little bit of learning curve. We're going to work on that, and hopefully by sometime late summer we'll be actually able to actually go into uh, a larger scale um, testing so we're, we're looking forward to that getting to be really excited <laughs> so is there a certain like is there like a certain weight that you guys are shooting for or no no it it, it varies uh, now the only place that really we talk about weight in you know, if you look on our on the uh, foundation website, you'll find the uh, uh, twelve points that we we tend to stress on uh, the penetration factors. Uh, and the only place that weight really comes into it, one, yes, you want to shoot the heaviest arrow that you can shoot that that has acceptable trajectory for you. But if you're looking at breaching heavy bones. What came out from all the study was that you need about 650 grains uh, of arrow mass to breach a heavy bone. And uh, that 
doesn't change with with uh, any of the other factors. Uh, it's strictly dependent upon the weight of the air for breaching that heavy bone. And that's because when you hit the bone, uh, and this is in a penetration-enhanced era, uh, you've got to be dealing with a broadhead that was uh, at least 2.6 or higher mechanical advantage. So it, it's going to have to be with a good broadhead. But with a good broadhead at 650 grains, uh, you can breach a heavy bone with 100% frequency. Now, the heavy bone threshold, that 650 grains, applies to all eras, regardless, all broadheads. But if you've got a broadhead that's a poor bone performer that has difficulty getting through bones, uh, below that 650 threshold, it may only breach the heavy bone 8 9% of the time. But when you reach that threshold, it makes an abrupt jump, and it might go up to 14 15%. Who knows? But it'll make some kind of jump. But when you get into these penetration-enhanced eras with a higher mechanical advantage broadheads, when you hit that 650 in our testing, it reached 100%. And when you're doing outcome-driven testing, to reach 100% with anything is it's absolutely amazing. There's only a couple of factors we ever found where we reached 100% frequency. But uh, that one we did uh, with, like I said, a penetration-maximized, penetration-enhanced error. But uh, FOC and all the other factors, uh, error of flight needs to be there regardless in structural integrity. You've got to have those two. But uh, other than that, uh, none of the other factors influence the heavy bone threshold. It is strictly how long that air can push on the bone because that bone has an attachment that lets it move. You know, they're there for more than just holding up the body. The, the bones are there to protect the body, too. And so when you hit that bone, it wants to move, and then it wants to give. And the bones also have all these surfaces that curve, usually in multiple directions. Now, all of that is to direct and uh, deflect and redirect impact forces to protect the, the internal organs of the body. And so you've got to be able to overcome all that, and that depends strictly on how long that error can push on that bone. And so you can take a light error with high force and come in there and hit that bone really hard, but it won't breach the bone. But if you take a heavy air that pushes and pushes and keeps pushing till it exceeds the stress limit of the bone, then it goes through. And that's the only place that weight really, really comes into it. Uh, but weight is always an advantage. So you want to go as heavy as you can in the air uh, and still have trajectory you can live with. So weight's just one of the many factors. So you said you said something about FOC. Can you explain that a little bit to everybody so they kind of understand? Because sometimes that's kind of like oh, a lost okay. thing. Okay. Uh, FOC is the weight forward of center, and basically it's an aeronautical term. Uh, the FOC, the higher an object in flight's FOC, the more stable it is in flight. In other words, the harder it is for change or to change direction. The lower the FOC the more maneuverable it is so that it can change directions very, very easily. Uh, so you take something like a, uh, F 23 Raptor, uh, a human can't fly it without computer assist. 
it has virtually a neutral uh, Wake Florida center. But you take something like a dart, which has a lot of weight up front, and they fly very well. They literally fly like a dart, which is what we want in an era. We want stability. And you have to remember that an era, until it comes to a stop, is always flying. And when it's going through an animal, it's just flying through a different uh, different medium. That's all it's doing. Instead of flying through air, it's flying through meat and gristle and hide and bone. Uh, so it's flying through these different mediums, but it's still flying. So you want as much stability as you can get. Now, most eras, uh, what we consider normal FOC, uh, would be something 12% or less. Uh, and a high FOC traditionally has been anywhere from, you know, 12 on up to 17, 18%. Well, for years and years, that's about all that there was. And then we got to playing with all this high FOC stuff and uh, found some amazing increases in penetration, uh, particularly through soft tissues and in post-breaching uh, post of bones the FOC comes into play to uh, give you very high penetration. I'm swatting at a bee flying around here. <laughs> uh, I'm being attacked. Uh, they don't bother you any. They just lie there and crawl around. <laughs> but uh, FOC, uh, what we measure in error isn't the absolute FOC. It's a relative term. Uh, just like many other relative terms we use. It's, it's a way to measure what's on the error so we can duplicate the error. The true FOC uh, exists only when an object is in flight. And then you do have a true FOC. And it can change depending on the angle that uh, the air is flying at, uh, what outside wind effects there are, uh, what elevation you're at, what latitude and longitude, I mean, everything affects the true FOC. So what we're doing is measuring uh, a relative figure. As we got into this, we, we established a couple of, uh, of terms because we had something had to have something to call them. And the first place that I could document uh, a major jump in penetration from the effect of FOC by itself, taking identical errors, uh, in, in all external aspects, uh, same shaft size, same broadhead, everything the same, except for the amount of FOC. Uh, both both errors tuned for perfect flight. That's the way we were testing. And once we got to 19%, we could de definitely document an increase. So we decided to call uh, 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 an EFOC, or extreme weight forward to center error, anything that was from 19% up to 30%. Now, at 30%, we decided to call them ultra-EFOC because with the components available then, it was extremely difficult to get to reach that 30% FOC. You could do it. I finally got an error up to just over 31, and uh, it was the best penetrating error I ever tested. And uh, the, the percentage, we can track it through different amounts of FOC, and we see the penetration going up 
as a percentage at a higher level for every percent FOC you go up. In other words, the amount of increase in penetration you get percentage-wise between 20 and 21 percent is not as high as it is between 22 and 23 percent or 23 and 24 percent. So each one goes up. One might show a five. I can't remember the numbers off the top of the head, but uh, say the 20 to 21 shows a 5 percent increase and 21 to 22 shows a 5.8% increase, and so forth. It goes up, but every time it goes up, there's a higher rate of gain. So it just it keeps stacking up. Uh, and by the time you get up to that ultra FOC, you go up 1% in FOC, and you know, you're gaining uh, 8 9 10% uh, increase in penetration. And that's off the penetration you know, just compared to the one below it. So that's, a you know, way more than that in total inches. So when you look at it overall, you know, you're talking at uh, anywhere up to 60% uh, increase in penetration uh, between an EFOC and an ultra-EFOC era. If you take a look across the spectrum, going up no higher than 30%, you can triple the penetration of an era. Exact same external profile, same broadhead, same everything. Just by increasing the FOC, you can you can get a full tripling of of the penetration. Say that first one penetrates four inches. Well, instead of four, you're going to have twelve inches. That's incredible. So it's just amazing what you can what you can do. Absolutely. So. Um, and, and all this came out of the out of the data from, like I said, out analyzing the the results out of those five thousand plus shots. And and were you shooting the same type of animal with different FOC arrows? Yes, and, s- but we were doing it multiple times. Right, you know anything can happen one time, but when it happens thirty times in a row. You've got something. <laughs> right. <laughs> You're not going off of one shot. No, 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 no. Everything is all off of many, many shots. Done in multiples. Uh, so, and uh, that's the, the only way you can do it. Those, that's how you do outcome-driven studies. They're uh, coming from medical background. Most uh, of the research that, uh, well, everything that I've done with this, most medical research is outcome-driven research. It's not like going in a lab and saying, okay, we've got to have a uniform medium and we've got to get this exact outcome every time for it to be the same because that's not real world. You have to get out there in the real world and, okay, you introduce all these random variables and then you take a huge sampling of data and you look and see what actually happened. Now, from what actually happened, you look at, how often did it happen? Under what circumstances does it happen? You know, so how likely is it to occur? And then you work backwards to, now, why does it happen? So it's, it's sort of a reverse, almost a deductive type of uh, logic to research it as opposed to going into the lab and saying, okay, you know, we put this much of a chemical in this and this is the reaction we're going to get. It, you can think of it as uh, uh, engineers spend 
you know, years and millions of dollars designing an airplane, and they've got everything worked out. But the first thing they have to do is put a, a test pilot in it and go out and fly it in the real world and find out what they didn't find, know, you know, from their lab studies. So essentially that's what we're doing. We're taking it out on, on test pilot status. <laughs> <laughs> a little safer being on the ground, though. True. <laughs> It's sometimes not safer, though. I've had a few close calls. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in the African bush. You never know what could happen over there. <laughs> I've I spent my time of running and ducking behind trees. <laughs> How many times has that happened to you? <laughs> Several. And then we came real close. Uh, uh, the fellow that worked with me down in Australia had an Asian buffalo uh, take his shirt pocket off Ooh. with the tip of his horn. Oh. That's getting pretty close. Do you think that the Asian buffalo is worse than, like, the water buffalo in South Africa? Uh, the Cape buffalo has the reputation of being extremely deadly and certainly has killed a lot of people. But the Asian buffalo is a bigger buffalo, and they are aggressive, and they will attack you. <laughs> I can swear to that. <laughs> wow. So how does that feel being on the ground with a, with a bow and arrow trying to to take one of those down, like knowing that they're like one of the most dangerous animals out there? You don't think about it till it's over. Really? You're, you're so intent on getting close enough and then getting there and where you need to get it that uh, you really don't think about it. The, the only time that it really shook me was on my second rhino, and I was by myself with no gun back up. And, uh, it's a, it's a kind of long story, but uh, we were kept seeing this one bull down in a big, big basin area, and he would spook out and, and run out through the mountains through this little pass, this little narrow gap. And uh, we'd gone out and dropped off the trackers looking, you know, to follow tracks to see what kind of bull was there. And uh, there was just me and uh, Chris Freeman. And uh, we came over the top of the hill and got the glass, and sure enough, that same same bull was down there. He's a big bull too, and uh, bigger body than the first one I shot. But he was he had been dehorned. He's very old, very old animal. And uh, so Chris said, "Well, I tell you what," I said I'll give you, you know, I don't remember what it was, forty five minutes. You, you work your way around and go up in that draw and see if you can find a place where he goes out there and ambush you. And uh, after that, I'll go down here just like we've done before, and I'll try to very carefully stalk him. And he'll probably spook and go out just like he has the other times. So I did. I went up in the gap up there, and I got in there, and it kept getting narrower and narrower and narrower. And finally, I got way up to the end where it broke out. And this thing had walls that went up at about, oh, probably a 70-degree angle. And couldn't have been more than 10 feet wide up there. Well, there were two trails coming out up there, one right down in the bottom of it, and one about three feet high uh, up on the side, on the left-hand side. And I looked, and all of the tracks right there where it broke out were down this lower trail. And so I got up on the upper trail. And I was standing there, and pretty soon, you know, I, I could hear rocks rolling and I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and, you know, more rocks, and getting closer and closer. And and I didn't want to move, but I, I just cut my eyes around 
to the right there, and, and here he was coming, but he was on the upper trail where I was standing. And he got about probably 20 yards from me, and he went down onto the lower trail, which is, I guess, what they do a lot. I just hadn't didn't look at it close enough to start with. I just knew that the, there were none of his tracks on that top trail there where I was when I got there. But anyway, as he came out by me, now you got to consider that this is the second largest of, of the land animals and uh, stands about, oh, six and a half feet at the shoulder. Now I'm standing three feet high about, well, if we after it was over, Chris and I measured with a steel tape from my footprints to his, and it was seven feet. Wow. So he's coming right by me. And when I shot him, he's right that close to me. And it never even occurred to me that, you know, what a dangerous situation it was. I was so intent on, on getting the shot. And fortunately, he, he just took off. He ran right on out in that opening, made several circles and, and took off, went down there a little ways. And that was the end of him. But uh, after it was over, uh, it had dawned on me. You know, all he had to do was turn his head around, and I was a goner. I mean, he just flipped his head to the side. <laughs> that was it. I'd, I'd have been toast. And, and I shook like a leaf on that one. <laughs> but not till it was over. Didn't bother me any up to that point. Wow, that's <laughs> that the crazy. the thing I ever did. <laughs> wow. Yeah, but that's a story that nobody can replicate. Well, that's I mean, true. That's, that's insane. <laughs> Not many people are going to get that chance anymore, but, you know, I think about the only rhino hunting they're allowing now is uh, so-called green hunting where they dart them. Yeah, because so it's, it's not going to be a whole lot of people hunting them anymore. It's not oh, legal yeah. to take them anymore, right? Uh, under certain circumstances, they have allowed some to be taken. Uh, and they're going to have to allow some to be taken off if they're going to keep them economically viable. Uh, viable. That's what brought the whole uh, uh, white rhino population back. They were down to 35 animals that they found at uh, Umfalozi. They thought they were extinct for the southern white rhino. And they found 35 animals. And from those 35 animals, they brought them back now to several thousand in South Africa, uh, all through hunting them. But you do have to take some of the animals off because an old bull, he will only breed up to a certain age. But he will continue to hold his territory. And unless a bull has his own territory, then he won't breed. So you've got to take these old bulls off when they pass breeding age so that the younger bulls can have a territory. Because Africa's not like it used to be. You know, when it was just, uh, he could go anywhere in Africa. No, there's people and cities and roads and farms and places he's not going to be allowed. They're confined to a set amount of land. And uh, unless the, the younger bull can find a territory, then there'll be no growth in the, in the population of the herd. So once they reach that point, those old bulls need to be taken off. And what they were doing up, you know, at, at that time was you went over there, you paid a lot of money, you did, you know, you, uh, the trophy fee all went into the rhino management program. So literally, the funding of the whole program was run out of hunters paying for it, and they're going to, they'll have to they'll have to have some kind of 
something down the line to figure out how to do this. And and that's how that's how a lot of things in Africa go. And I don't think a lot of people understand that. They, a lot of people don't. Uh, you know, they they all they have to do is look at the the huge die off that happened in Kenya with the elephants after they stopped all hunting up there, and the population of the herd grew up and grew up and grew up, and and they ate up everything they could eat. And the same thing, they they had no place else to go. There are people living on that other land. They go out there, the people cross. Well, yeah, they get shot. Now, the government comes and shoots them. <laughs> uh, and once they ate up everything that they could eat and no place for them to go, the, the, the starvation and the, the die-off of the elephants was immense. And so since then, as they brought them back, they've tried to control the population. To Not through hunting, though. They just go out and they, the government calls them in, in Kenya. But uh, there are some real good management programs. Uh, you know, uh, the uh, herd moves back and forth from uh, Botswana and to Zimbabwe. Uh, that's been managed very, very well. And the population is holding up excellent. Uh, and it's very static. They take off enough animals uh, through hunting to keep the population at, at what the habitat will support and have a, a healthy, viable elephant population. You know, I look down the road and I think the, the way Africa's human population is growing, and most of the animals are sooner or later are doomed over there. You know, the, the my, my hunting partner over there that, that I worked with as a professional hunter, Gordon Cormack, had the best description of it. He said he was born and raised in Tanganyika, uh, what's Tanzania now. Uh, he said that when he was young, Africa was a sea of animals with little islands of people. And now it's a sea of people with little islands of animals. That's a good description of, of what has happened to Africa. And those and those animals definitely need to be managed at that point. Oh, you, yeah, you got to manage the population because you only have finite habitat. And if you don't have a, an economic value to the animal, there's no reason for anybody to save them. You know, the native is not going to save the animal unless you can show him that somehow he benefits from that animal that's going to come in and, you know, might tear up his crop and eat part of his crop. or you know, Unless there's some reason for him not to go out and just kill that animal, he's going to go kill that animal. I mean, And, and that's, they have the campfire project scattered around Africa, which, uh, you know, a, a portion of all the hunting, the money that comes in from hunting uh, goes to the local tribal communities and the meat goes to them and you know they're programs to get the local people to see and understand that uh they benefit there is an economic reason for those animals being there they benefit from it and more and more of them are employed in that industry you know as the trackers and the skinners and the the cooks and the hostesses and there's a huge number of people behind the scene on any hunting operation uh and they try to employ the local people in the area they're hunting in as much as they can. Some of the highly skilled people, you know, travel with a professional hunter to doesn't matter where he's going. But uh, for the other people, as you change camps, you try to try to have local people employed. So if they again are seeing an economic value to having the hunting system, we need to get the Americans to understand this. 
it's very difficult for people to understand it. It uh, you know, some people just have this thing of oh, leave the animals alone, and you know if it's okay for them to go out there and starve to death, but you mustn't kill one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of Americans don't understand what the what the the economic you know plus is to it, where there where the, where the money that that we spend on tags over there goes back into the tribes and the food goes to the tribes and so on and so forth. Not just over there massacring all of the animals on the land that they need to be managed also. Right. And, and no hunter over there, no professional hunter is going to try to wipe out the herd because that's his livelihood too. Mm-hmm. You know, so they're going to help manage the animals as best they can. That's why they're all behind these, these, uh, campfire projects and things like that to, you know, to make sure that all the locals understand that, hey, you know, there's a, there's a reason for keeping these animals here. Because if they got rid of them, then nobody would have a job and then the, the economy would crash there. Yeah, and because, you know, you get in the African bush, there's not a lot of jobs. <laughs> I couldn't imagine. <laughs> It's just it's just the people that are that are there hunting, right? Yeah, in the camps That's and so on and so it. forth. Other than that, it's uh, almost a hunter gatherer society. <laughs> and you have all you know, the poachers. They, they raise some little, some little plots of crops, but uh, you know they just survive off of what they can find. Wow, That's crazy. It's, it's, At that point, they're going to kill anything they can kill because they need the meat. That's right. But if they're getting the meat and don't have to go out and work for it, you know, hunting, hunting on the way they have to hunt is hard work. And uh, so if they, if somebody's going to bring them meat and go, okay, here's a, here's a whole elephant. Okay. Uh, you know, we can eat real good for the next several months here. <laughs> then they'll stop, they'll stop poaching everything. Well, they, yeah, that does cut down the poaching and, and the way they, normally poach is not by hunting it's, it's by snares and that's an awful way for an animal to die and it uh we uh, don't know how many thousands of snares taken up over there uh snares are you know they don't discriminate they'll catch anything an elephant gets his trunk in there and gets the trunk you know he literally pulls on it until he cuts his own trunk off uh Leopards get caught, baboons get caught, monkeys get caught, everything. You know, that that, that uh, snare makes no distinction. They also, don't they run big footholds that are really heavy that they have to drag around until they literally, like, dehydrate themselves to death? Sometimes the snares are hooked onto a drag. Okay. Uh, yeah, with a big heavy log or something. Other times they're not. They're, they're permanent. But those big heavy drags, it's not really to dehydrate them at all. Uh, they they do their drags so that they tend to hang up on the brush. Oh, so it holds them. Uh, up. They will normally have a fork. Uh, it'll be a tree trunk with a big limb forked out on it, cut off. So it makes like a big Y. And uh, as they drag it along, it's going to hang up on something. Geez, so it holds them in one spot. Yeah. And do they always find these animals though? Or no. They, yeah, I didn't think so. No, no, no. They, uh, they uh, oh, I couldn't tell you the number of animals that uh, we've come across that, uh, you know, have died in snares. Nobody's ever taken them out of the snares. They're still there. 
Ugh, that's insane. That's nuts. It is, but uh, you know the ones that, like I said, there's not jobs out there, right? Uh, and and they'll go poach animals and dry the meat, and then go try to sell the meat. You know, they'll make a trip into town and try to try to sell the meat to people. But if you have one hunter there that takes a couple of animals, then now feeds a tribe and everybody but else. That's that, that's yeah. If you well, you have you have to have more than one hunter in there. You would if you have some hunters coming in, and, and uh, they're taking a, enough to feed most of the tribe, and they're providing jobs. Again, they're providing that that cash that the the poacher's going to get from selling the meat. Mm-hmm. Here's here's a way you can do it without having to go out there and and uh, you know risk his life. Because uh, in a lot of places, poachers can be shot. You know, you got game game scouts out there trying to find them, and uh, so they're they're taking quite a chance sometimes going out to poach like that. Yep. But that's the only way they can come up with money. Right. But if you can set up something where there's jobs, or whether they don't, you know, even the ones that have to do it for food, and there's very few of those. Uh, most of the poachers are strictly out doing it commercially, so they can sell the meat. That's incredible. They were literally putting their lives on the line for it. Yes. <laughs> That's nuts. Well, I want to get back to the foundation just a little bit. Can you, kind right. of, can you kind of explain the 12 points that you're looking for when you're doing these studies? Okay. Now, the the the, uh, the 12 points, these are the things that, that uh, affect penetration of the air. And penetration is your number one factor. You know, uh, a lot of people will say, well, you know, I shot a deer and he got away and it was just bad shot placement. Well, unless you recover that animal to see what happens, you don't know if it's bad, bad shot placement or what happened. But from the stuff we've done in the study, uh, there, there's no question, and it came out even from the original recall study, that the number one reason for a shot to be non-lethal is lack of penetration. So penetration is the most important factor you have to get out of your error. So all of these factors are designed to increase the penetration of your error. Now, the very first factor is the structural integrity of the error. You don't want anything to bend or break because if it does, your penetration is shot. If you take a, a broadhead and you just put a very tiny, tip bend on it. The average loss in penetration is 14%. So it's amazing how much you lose just from something like that. But structural integrity is, is a requirement for every hunting error. It's an absolute must-have error design feature. If you don't have that, none of the other factors can be relied upon because you can have a heavy error that flies perfectly, but if it breaks on the impact, it's not going to do you any good. Now, the second factor is the air of flight. And the air of flight is, is what enables the other factors to work. It allows all of the benefits you get from these other factors to work at an optimum level, to give you more usable force on the target uh, and, and let each factor work at its full potential. And poor error flight just squanders your error's force. And if you end up with uh, all these other design factors in there, 
and poor air of flight, all you're going to have is, is a arrow that flies terribly. It has all these good design features, and it's still not going to perform. So that's a, that's something you you just got to have. And if you if your broadheads have a different point of impact than your field points, then somewhere your your setup is not tuned. There's something wrong with it somewhere. Now, the other factors, as I go down through them, are ranked in order of what gives you the most benefit. But they will change sometimes, depending on the situation. It's like the very last factor, number 12, is an arrow weight above the heavy bone threshold. That's that 650 grains. Because it's not real important unless you hit heavy bone. But when you hit heavy bone, it jumps to number three, right behind the structural integrity of the perfect air flight. So under certain circumstances, they flip-flop. But if you take all shots and lump them together, the rest of these factors are listed in order of which one is most important overall. Yeah, our third factor is the arrows weight forward to center. We talked a good bit about the weight forward of center and what it is and what it does. And uh, so I don't need to go too much more into that. Uh, the fourth factor is the mechanical advantage of the broadhead. And that mechanical advantage is a term relating to a simple machine. In other words, it's how much it multiplies the force. It's like using a long ramp. A long ramp lets you do more work with less applied force they're trying to lift that weight right straight up. So mechanical advantage it will literally multiply whatever force you've got. If you've got, you know, uh, well, actually it'd be in momentum, so it'd be in slugs. So if you have 0.5 slugs of, of error force going forward, I hate to get into those terms, but that's really the proper one to apply. Then, uh, and a broadhead uh, mechanical advantage of three, then it's going to uh, tip, uh, uh, actually uh, increase the force of that error by a factor of three. It's going to let that error do three times as much work. And so basically, uh, the longer, narrow broadhead is, the highest mechanical advantage is going to be. The fewer blades it has, so a single blade head is going to be better than a three blade, going to be better than a four blade if they had the exact same dimension, same cut width, same length. So that's just, in essence uh, all what mechanical advantage is. And it, it you know it just like I said, it just multiplies the useful force of the error that's available. Our next factor is the shaft diameter, and. Uh, there, there's a. You have to look at the, the diameter of your broadhead ferrule. In I'm having to do all this off the top of my head here. <laughs> of the uh, uh, the diameter of the broadhead ferrule in relation to the shaft diameter. If the shaft is at least five percent smaller than the broadhead ferrule, then you gain on the average ten percent penetration. If the shaft is larger 
they have the broadhead feral, you lose 30% of your penetration. That's a 40% difference in penetration, just depending on the size of the shaft you have in relation to your broadhead. So that's a pretty important factor when you start considering uh, the amount of penetration you're going to get. The sixth factor is the the uh, mass of the arrow. And when all else is equal, uh, an arrow's tissue penetration is proportional to its momentum. Now, momentum is mass times velocity, not velocity squared like you would foot pounds. Just the, just the weight of the arrow times the velocity to get the momentum. And so the momentum is going to determine how long a body moves forward before it comes to a stop. So that amount of momentum has to be met by an, act, uh, an equal amount of resistance to penetration before it's going to stop. Now, not all momentum is going to work out equal in the amount of penetration because the momentum, remember, is force. Uh, it's weight and velocity. So the more of the momentum value that's vested in the weight of the error, the longer it's going to hold that because the weight of the error is not going to change during penetration. But the velocity is going to decrease. So momentum that is derived from the weight of the error is more important than the momentum that is gained from the velocity of the air. And that's well shown when we were doing the uh, uh, penetration test with the EFOC penetration maximized errors, where we had uh, oh, 192 or 96, I can't remember, consecutive shots that breached the heavy bone, the ribs on the, on the Asian buffaloes. Uh, and 25% of those were out of a 40-pound bare formula silver bow uh, with arrows that were traveling a blazing 119 feet per second. Whoa. But the arrows were uh, just shy of 800 grains wow. and at about 20%, 26% FOC. And all of them proved to be lethal hits traversing the thorax on the buffalo. So when you consider there's roughly 20% of the shots in there, that's... Uh, uh, 35, she's soaking more than that, almost 40 consecutive uh, shots that proved to be lethal. And it was 100% frequency. So, you know, it, it's all depends on how it's set up. Now, you could take, uh, and I have, I've done this several times, 70-pound, 80-pound compound in the testing and shooting, uh, you know, 300 and 325 grain arrows and literally have them bounce off the buffalo's ribs. Wow. So even though on paper they would have enough momentum to do it, most of the momentum came from the velocity, not from the mass of the air. So it was expelled very quickly. Again, that's that hard, quick blow as opposed to that long, slow push. All this, all these things do tie together, all these different factors. So that's, that's the important part of the air of mass, and that's why you should always 
try to shoot the heaviest arrow you possibly can that will give you a trajectory that meets your needs. Uh, let me think. Uh, what's next? Uh, the, the blade edge finish. Um, and that depends on uh, how well it's sharpened on there. Now, we did a lot of testing with different edge finishes where we uh, used honeness drop, I mean, beard shaving sharp edges, and we use file sharpened edges, and we uh, use serrated edges, much like the uh, Howard Hill type serrations you put on onto uh, broadheads. And what we did was take a whole series of arrows with different broadheads, and we sharpened the arrows by each of these methods. And then we shot them into seven layers of buffalo hide, fresh fresh buffalo hide. Each one of those is about an inch thick. And uh, then we, we measured the results for each arrow against itself with, with the different edge finish. And, uh, of course, these are very fibrous tissues in, in the skins and stuff. But uh, the home destroyed edge had a 26% advantage over a smoothly filed sharpened edge and a full 60% advantage over a serrated edge. So there's a, a definite advantage to that. And there are some other advantages to this honed and stropped edge uh, that have to do with uh, the hemorrhaging cascade uh, because the 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 thinness of it comes in too, and that actually relates to uh, edge profiles, which is a factor coming up. But the thinnest, smoothest, sharpest edge you can achieve while still maintaining the edge integrity so that it doesn't get damaged during penetration. It slices tissue with the greatest efficiency and causes the maximum amount of blood loss. When you Slice a blood vessel. Uh, see if I can remember all of it. Uh, it goes prothrombin is then is converted to thrombin. Thrombin reacts with the blood enzyme to cause uh, fibrinogen, and the fibrinogen causes fibrin. The fibrin attaches to little tags of tissue where the slice is, and that's what causes the blood clot to form. So the thinnest, smoothest, sharpest edge you can have goes through there. It creates the fewest tissue tags, but it also disrupts the fewest cells in the lining of the blood vessel, which is where prothrombin comes from. And so it produces less prothrombin, which in turn means less thrombin, which means less fibrinogen, which means less fibrin, and it bleeds longer and freer. So the type of edge finish you've got on your blade is a very important factor in the in the uh, clotting time of any blood vessel, from the smallest capillary on up to a big blood vessel. Uh, the next uh, factor we would come to would be shaft profile. And we looked at parallel shafts, tapered shafts, and barrel tapered shafts, 
And uh, a tapered shaft has an 8% penetration advantage over a parallel shaft. And it has a 15% penetration advantage over a barrel tapered shaft. And the parallel shaft has about a 7% advantage over a barrel tapered shaft. So the, the tapered shaft starts out, remember you want it 5% smaller than your broadhead ferrule to start with. But then as it penetrates, it gets thinner and thinner. So you get less and less drag on the wound channel. The parallel shaft, even though it's a little small, has a, a uniform amount of drag all the way in. Of course, as it penetrates deeper, you've got more and more surface area of the shaft in contact with the wound channel. So that it's increasing the amount of drag as it goes. Well, the tapered shaft, you're getting less and less contact of the sidewall of the shaft uh, with the wound channel. And on a barrel tapered, of course, it goes in, and then it actually gets bigger as it goes to the middle of the shaft. So it's really increasing the amount of drag uh, that the shaft is going to have on the wound channel. And that's the different type of profiles you want to look at. Now, micro shafts did not exist when I was doing the testing. So in the new testing, we will be looking at micro shafts. Where are they going to fall in there? I don't know. They may do very, very well. You know, they may show an increase over a, a taper shaft. I don't know. Let's try it. Of course, the taper shaft has an advantage of pushing up the FOC of the arrow, too, which is a big plus factor. Let's see. Our next uh, factor is number nine, uh, broadhead and, and arrow silhouette. Uh, that's how smooth or how sleek the broadhead is overall. Uh, how uh, the ferrule, how smooth the fade in of the ferrule is to the face of the blade. Any kind of bumps, lumps, things like that uh, create drag with the broadhead and tends to become a, a penetration factor. Uh, more important when you hit bone even light bone. Uh, and I would tend to put uh, vents and blades into this same category. I've seen a lot of problems with vents and blades because essentially, the, the even in soft tissue, tissue's coming across the blade and it hits that cutout and it whoop, tends to close down it. And then the back of it hits and makes a little bump when it comes to the back of the cutout. And so I consider that just like putting little bumps in there too. Uh, so that's uh, what you want to look at there is the sleekest. I don't know any way to describe it other than the sleekest and smoothest uh, silhouette that you can come up, up with on your broadhead. Uh, we did find that uh, in soft tissue, uh, some additional slickness helps too. Uh, some of the broadheads that have Teflon coatings and things like that. And a Teflon finish can uh, give you some penetration increase up to about 12% sometimes, uh, depending on the head profiles and things like that. The, the important thing is just not to have any ups and downs and lumps and bumps anywhere along the error profile. You know, not just the broad head, but the whole thing. As sleek as you can get it. And the tenth factor coming up would be the uh, type of edge bevel. And that's where we get into single bevel versus double bevel heads and 
we could talk for a long time on just this one thing. But uh, <laughs> I hope I'm not wearing y'all out. This does nope. get technical. It's kind of hard to explain to people. So no, not at all. We're we're sucked in. Okay, <laughs> we're falling. <laughs> all right. Uh, the single bevel broadheads. Now, most people have become familiar with the fact that that they rotate and that the rotation tends to split bones. That's why they show such massive increase in overall penetration on bone hits and heavy bone hits, especially long bones and so forth. The wider the bevel, uh, the more pressure that's generated as it goes through. The, the amount of torque of the broadhead is dependent upon how much of that bevel surface area is in contact uh, with the bone. So that the, the wider it is, and actually the heavier, the thicker the bone is, increases the torque. So as it goes in there, it'll, it'll torque harder and harder, depending on how wide that bevel is. But there, there are a lot of other advantages to a single bevel other than just splitting bones. And one of them is that most people don't think about it, but the edge bevel, has a mechanical advantage of, it own, of its own, just like the broadhead does. So uh, the mechanical advantage on an edge bevel would be uh, the length or the width of the edge bevel, not how long front to back, but how wide it is, uh, divided by the thickness of the blade. And you can calculate what the mechanical advantage, because it's just an inclined plane again. It's another simple machine. Now, if we go back to that other one where we're talking about honed and strop, smoothest, sharpest edge you can get, and then you make it a, a single bevel with a, a low angle, and you want to work with the lowest angle you possibly can and still not have it weak enough that it chips and breaks and rolls over and things like that, uh, that higher mechanical advantage means that it's going to take less force between a tissue like a blood vessel and the single bevel for it to be sliced because it has a higher efficiency. Or you could look at it the other way and say, okay, the higher the efficiency at the same level of tissue tension between the cutting edge and the tissue is going to slice deeper. So it has this, that mechanical advantage of the edge bevel itself is a very, very important factor and uh, something that's, that's overlooked. And that's why you do see uh, a lot more of what looks almost like uh, bloodshot tissue like they were shot with a gun with a single bevel than you do with double bevels. Uh, so it does make a big difference. And there are some other, many other little advantages to that single bevel edge. Uh, uh, the fact that when it's rotating through mobile tissues, uh, like lung tissue or uh, gut shots and things like that, is that it commonly winds the tissue up around it, and it literally makes starburst cuts so that you can get little nicks in the tissue that are sometimes as much as four or five inches away from where the air passed through, where it's wound tissue up around it, and then as the broadhead passed through, it's cut all these little tissues. So it does a tremendous amount of cutting, other than right along the path of the air. Uh, that's another that. little advantage that comes up with the single bevels. 
And it's one reason single bevel is becoming more and more and more popular. But uh, the the uh, bone splitting is, is definite uh, huge advantage. We did a lot of testing with identical broadheads, where one was sharpened double bevel, one single bevel, and in a hundred percent of the cases, this is another one of those places where we came up with a hundred percent frequency. A hundred percent of the time, the single bevel will outpenetrate the double bevel. And the amount of penetration gain ranged anywhere from 14% to 58%. Now that 58% actually comes on the big wide broadheads. And it won't mean that they're going to out-penetrate uh, a narrow, long, high mechanical advantage head. But that long, uh, narrow head is still going to gain 14% over what it already had, which was very substantial compared to that big, wide head. But percentage-wise, the big, wide heads gained more advantage from the single bevel than did the long, narrow, high mechanical advantage heads. But then you've got all the other advantages of the single bevel besides just the penetration and so forth. Uh, so it's a very important factor, very much overlooked, even though it, you know, overall doesn't yield always as much uh, penetration gain as you get out of some of the other factors. But uh, it's not going to triple your penetration like a FOC can. Uh our next factor, we're uh, under 11, would be the, the tip design. And the tip designs, uh, a lot of tips are not strong enough. Um, we, we tested seven different, I believe it was seven, seven, nine, no, I think it was seven different uh, tip profiles and uh, a lot of shots with them. And we were looking at things not only uh, how strong they are, how resistant to damage. Uh, we looked uh, a lot at the skip angle of the broadhead so that when you impact a mown surface at an angle, uh, how likely is the broadhead to bite into the bone or skip off the bone? And of all the tip designs we tested, the Tanto tip came out the best. Now, a true needle tip, you know, a two-blade head that came down to a true needle tip would probably do really well if you could ever find one strong enough that they didn't get damaged. But we never found one that didn't get damaged. The Tanto tip has the advantage of being extremely strong. And it, it hits that bone, and, and it's almost like an axe biting in there. And it had the best skip angle. And... Uh, had the lowest damage rate of any design tested. So overall, that's uh, the one we recommend by far the most. Uh, third down, or, or second down behind it overall, was the uh, chisel tip. So that would be the next best tip to have on the end uh, if you can't have a Tanto tip on there. And then, of course, back down to 12, which we already talked about, was the uh, arrow mass above the heavy bone threshold. And, you know, it's uh, it's really important when you make a heavy bone hit. But if you don't make a heavy bone hit, you can probably use a 525-grain arrow 
and get just about as much penetration, if not as much. But if you hit a heavy bone, there's going to be a big difference. So it just depends on what you want to do. And we don't try to push this as, hey, you got to use all this stuff. This is a toolbox. These are things you can do to your air setup to make it a more lethal setup. Every factor you add in is going to help. Now, you should always have factors one and two. You should have that structural integrity, and you should have perfect air flight. Regardless of what else you do, you need those two things. They are the two most important things of all. And then you can go through this. You don't have to go all hog changing and air setup. You can go through and say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change to a, a, a better broadhead. Uh, something with a higher mechanical advantage. Uh, and I'm going to sharpen them honed and stropped. But that's improved your air setup a lot right there. You know, without doing, without changing the weight, without doing anything else. So you can go through and just sort of pick and choose on those. But if you want the best performance you can possibly get, then you go through and you maximize every one of those factors. And that's what, when that's done, that's what we call a penetration maximized error. You've done everything you can to that error to enhance its penetration. And that's where you start to get the, these unbelievable amounts of penetration where we've got uh, ladies shooting 40 pound bows into uh, you know a, a 1900 pound eland and getting the 60 some odd inches of penetration you know so that's the that's the type of penetration you can get with these totally maximized penetration enhanced arrows wow that's incredible especially at 40 pounds yeah. Wow. That's a tough thing. <laughs> Actually, if I'm not mistaken, it's a 38-pound bow Jeez. that she was using. But oh, it was roughly God. 40 pounds. Wow. But had uh, just over 60, 61 or 62 inches of penetration. Wow. In a, in a about a 1,900-pound eland. Jeez. That's incredible. You've built, you've built quite the foundation, Dr. Ashby. Well, we're working on it. We're we're trying to, uh, and we keep it totally independent. We don't uh, we don't take donations from anybody in the archery industry. So, you know, no, none of the companies are they can't give us equipment. We buy our equipment. We buy the broadheads we test. We buy the arrow shafts. We buy everything like that. And we depend. We're a five hundred one c three nonprofit. We depend totally on donations from people to keep us going. And uh, so that's. Anybody out there that wants to donate, go to our website, and, and we'll sure appreciate it. But uh, and we look for, you know, for grants from uh, places like the Dallas Safari Club and Houston Safari Club, places like that, uh, to, to help fund it, too. Uh, when I was doing the research, I funded it all out of my own pocket. But uh, you can't get many people in the world that's going to do that. They gotta love it. <laughs> That's the truth, right? <laughs> what What is the website they can find some of this information on? Uh, well, let me think. What it is? I think it's just uh, AshleyBowHuntingFoundation.com. Let me hang on here. I'll have to call something up and find out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it'll load up here in a minute. Oh, there we go. 
ashbybowhunting.org. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> I got it bookmarked, so I don't I don't have to <laughs> I don't have to remember it. That's right. <laughs> I, we do have one last question for you, Dr. Ashby, and that is, what drives sure. you outdoors? What what does what? What drives you outdoors? What drives me? Outdoors. Outdoors? Yeah, what what makes oh. you want to go outside and hunt? What makes you want to do the Ashby Theory? What makes you want to do all this well, stuff? Well, I've, I've, I've always done it. I, uh, you know, uh, I grew up in, in a hunting family. Uh, uh, Dad was an NRA rifle instructor, and I shot competitive rifle when i was shot my first match when i was five years old and so i I grew up hunting and, and you know we were we were relatively poor we didn't know it and uh we ate game meat all the time and heck it was just fun for me and my brother go out and shoot stuff and uh we didn't realize we feed the family but <laughs> but it was <laughs> and uh and yeah, we, we grew up like i said like a little wild indians on the week oh my my parents would uh they'd got thrown in jail nowadays. Where they, they they'd call it child abuse, but they'd take us on the weekend on a Friday and dump us off down in the creek bottom, and just me and my brother. And heck, he was probably ten, and I was about seven. We'd spend the whole weekend down there just us. We'd run set hooks, and we'd shoot rabbits and squirrels and turtles, and you know shoot soft shell turtles and eat those. <laughs> Just carry a piece of tarp to, to keep rain off of us if it rained, and in a coffee can to you know boil water in or cook in. <laughs> there we went. We were all on our own for a whole weekend. And in the summer, they'd take us down to the Sabine River and put us out on the sandbar for you know weeks at a time. We'd go down there when uh, we'd trap uh, menace, and then Dad'd come up on Sunday and he'd pick all of them up and take them down to the bait shop and sell them to them. <laughs> you were there living you the real life. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's great fun. Oh, we grew up like I said, like old wild Indians. We just we loved it. <laughs> That's outstanding. Well, Doctor Ashby, we really can't thank you enough for jumping on here and going through that. What you laid down is more than I think me and Trev combined could remember off the top of our heads. So, well, it's all on the website. You can go on there and. Uh, <laughs> We've got all the reports on there and, and a whole article, I think, on the 12 factors in there. and Plenty of stuff for people to read. They're keeping busy a while. Well, I sure as hell hope that everybody out listening does just that because this knowledge is uh, irreplaceable. And you've done a hell of a job over your lifespan building it up, and we appreciate that. Now, that's one of the goals of the foundation. We want to make this available for free to everybody everywhere. Well, outstanding. And, uh, we're doing our best, and, and we've done a we we've, we've partnered with uh, partnered with Texas Parks and Wildlife. There's a lot a lot of other organizations too, and uh, we now put on the training programs for the uh, bow hunter education trainers. So we train the trainers. Awesome. Uh, that, that we we're really enjoying that. We have a great working relationship with Texas Parks and Wildlife. They're uh, fantastic folks to work with. Well, one more reason everyone loves Texas, right? That's right. <laughs> well, again, thank you for your time. And uh, I know we drug you out for a lot of your night, but we really do oh, appreciate it's all right. it. I, uh, I love it. And uh, the foundation's my my pride and joy. We've uh, I'm so tickled that we're, it's become a reality. <laughs> well, 
it, it's a pleasure having you on and uh, i really look forward to working with you in the future getting some more information if you, you ever need uh volunteers or uh people to go out and help with these hunts you know me and trevor are always available we would love to go do that just saying well we're talking about that as we get into the to the hog testing of getting people down that want to come down and help us with them and so forth I, but we'll see how it goes as we get it all up and running here and hopefully <laughs> it'll go good we've got uh, about three thousand acres there we can shoot all the hogs off of we won't <laughs> outstanding well you ever run out of people, give us a shout. We'd be more right. to give you a hand. Okay. Well, it was now, nice talking to y'all. You bet. And uh, for everybody out there listening, get in there, get this information, look it up, get the details, and uh, educate yourself because this stuff is vital. And until then, thanks for taking the ride right here on the Outdoor Drive. Mm-hmm.